Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host with the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. The great writer Jorge Luis Borges said, time is the substance I've made of. Time is a river which sweeps me along, but I am the river. It is a tiger which destroys me, but I am the tiger. It is a fire which consumes me, but I am the fire. Today we're talking about time. We'll discover a bit about what the ancients had to say about time and how they conceived of its mystery and its function in the life of a people. We're delighted to be talking with Professor Lynn Kay about her new book, Time in the Babylonian Talmud, Natural and Imagined Times in Jewish Law and Narrative. Thank you. Professor Lynn Kay is Assistant Professor of Rabbinic Literature and Thought at the Brandeis University. Lynn Kay, welcome to the show. Lynn, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. I uh, live in the Boston area. Um, I work at Brandeis, as you mentioned. Um, I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, and in London, England. And I still have a great interest in traveling and uh, meeting people from different places. And, And what inspired you to become a scholar? And please speak up a little bit so we can hear you better. Sure. I think that I always liked school and I always liked to learn. I remember when I was a kid, I was speaking to my grandfather and I told him how pleased I was that all that my job was to do was to go to school and uh, how, how happy I was with that. So I think that I've always enjoyed learning. In my 20s, I was considering various career paths, but I realized that one of the things about being a scholar was that you could always go deep into study in a way that other other kinds of jobs might allow you to do some study, but maybe not go down into the depths of something and really investigate. And uh, that's one of the great parts of being a scholar. And then the other part is that you get to teach and you get to learn from your students. That's great. And how did you come to write a book about time? I used to think that the answer to that question was, and it's partly true, it was a negotiation and a development with my wonderful doctoral advisor, Jeffrey Rubenstein. I pitched an idea, he came back with something, and we eventually got to time. But I now realize also that I have a background in science fiction, and I've always considered myself a connoisseur of time travel. So if you showed me a movie or a book, and it had a theory about time travel, I was very discerning about whether I thought that was convincing or not. You know, should you be able to be Superman and fly around the world the other way, and that should turn back time? Or should you be able to slingshot in your starship around the sun, and that should turn back time? I had always, since I was a kid, had very specific opinions about those things. So I think that even though the way that I came to write about time was a very serious conversation between me and my advisor, I think 
in coming to time, I also was coming back home to something that has been an interest to me in non-academic realms for a while. Well, that, that is very interesting because what science fiction does with time is also reflected in the way we talk about time every day. We talk about the experience of time flying and time slowing down. We live and act and grow in time. But what would you say time is anyway? I have two thoughts on that. One is as a result of my research and in you know, being with other people who think about time, an important thing to say is that it isn't one thing and that depending on the culture that one has come up in or the disciplines, questions that one is a part of, time will mean very different things. And that's not a way of avoiding the question. It's a way of expanding the kinds of questions and answers we can have together. That being said, the conclusion that I came to about a theory or an account of time that could be useful for the materials that I was studying, I came to something that was sort of a visual idea. And that would be that it is the thing that could connect events, but not in any particular shape. So that I I remember seeing this um, painting by Kandinsky, which eventually, thanks to the Guggenheim's Museum's generosity was able to be included in the book and also um, the book's cover. And what you see, the, the painting is called Several Circles. And you see many colorful circles overlapping one another. And, and it sort of reminds me almost of a molecule or something like that. And that image was very important to me in thinking about time, because I think that sometimes we might get locked into one shape or one idea of how events relate to one another. Well, they go in a line, they proceed, and they can't go backwards, all these kinds of things. And by not being wedded to one particular shape of how events relate to one another, but understanding that events can have multiple connections to one another through time, that seemed to give me an an ability to account for the kinds of times I was seeing in the materials I was looking at. But I think even beyond Talmud, having a more flexible notion of the interconnections of events beyond things coming one after another, I think that can be very powerful. Well, let's take that a little deeper. Uh, We all know about cyclical time. The seasons follow one another in in, uh, predictable ways year after year. And then there's linear time while you're waiting for time to move you forward to your next birthday. And what other experiences of time or how do those connect? Uh, Yeah, that's a a good question. One of the things I, I think about your description of cyclical time is that it includes, we should note succession. So succession, one thing to another, can be a part of many different shapes of time. So in order to get from one winter to the next, you have to go through days and um, nights and the changing uh, cold and warm and so on. And then you come eventually to the next winter. So linear time, if if you're going to describe it as, as waiting and so on, that has to do with succession and duration. But so does cyclical time, because all of those things have to do with um, processes of change. And the difference between cyclical and linear might be more conceptual, meaning do you get to return to something through that process of duration or is everything always new and never to be repeated? 
Uh-huh. Now, now, novelists and writers of all kinds have dealt with time or the experience of time. And when Virginia Woolf said, time on the clock is not time in the mind, it made me think of your use of the expression temporal imagination. Is that the same thing? And can you tell us what temporal imagination is? Yes. I'm so glad you brought up Wolf. I, I have felt so influenced by and inspired by literary arts and visual arts in trying to work through explanations of time. So when I say temporal imagination, I want to point people towards the ways that 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 other people might have constructed time for themselves, as opposed to assuming the time is imposed on people. And to to indicate the wealth of possibilities of how one's experience can be interpreted as time and how one's mind can project different shapes, adventures that, that people are going through as time. So when, when, when Virginia Woolf talks about time of the mind, I would say times of the mind. So like you were saying in, in your introduction, Sometimes it feels like there's a never-ending wait and it's only been five minutes, but it's because you're, you're afraid of what's going to happen or it's an uncomfortable space. And sometimes things can feel fast. But also you can tell yourself a story about your life, which is a different time of the mind. You can say, I've always been this way, or I'm always changing, or the, pl- the where I'm trying to get to is something new. There's so many ways people imagine time for themselves, for their communities, for their families, if you're a legal thinker, if you're a psychologist. And so I think there are many temporal, there's many ways of being imaginative for time. And that's what I meant about temporal imagination. Uh, Why is the Talmud with its narrative and its legal discussions, why is the Talmud a useful text for understanding the ancient Jewish view of time? It's useful because it shows such an array of different ways to construct time. For example, and this is true of many legal collections, I I would think, there there starts with a, a layer of time that I think is very familiar, which would be the processes of change that a person feels in their body or, you know, like uh, heartbeats and breathing, and then at a longer duration aging, as well as the um, physical processes in the world, day and night, and the seasons. And these are regular, even as they change, you know, in seasons, but they're, they're, they are a, an important fundamental layer that the rabbis can build other more creative constructions of time on top of. It gives them a framework within which to be quite imaginative in how time can be, in, can be portrayed. And then on top of that first layer, different legal problems can be solved or helped by imagining time working just a little differently. For example, if two people wanted to create a contract but there's an extra piece of information they don't have right now or a thing that has to happen that hasn't happened just yet. Maybe they want to sell a house or they want to sell a piece of property, but that sale will only be useful if, I don't know, a mall is built down the way. 
Otherwise, the purchaser doesn't want to sell it and doesn't want to buy it, mm-hmm. and the seller doesn't okay. want to sell it. So now we have a problem that they want to make a, a deal now, but it's not the right time for the deal. On the other hand, they don't want to just wait to see if the mall gets built. I don't know why. Maybe because then the price will be different, or maybe the person who's selling is going to be out of the country. There's some reason why now is the right time for the sale to go through. So how do you bridge the gap between wanting to do a deal now, but that deal is actually based on something happening in the future or not happening? Well, one way of doing that is to propose that the law can bridge the gap from a temporal perspective. And so a simple thing that happens in many different kinds of law is you can have a contract in which a sale will be dependent on a future condition. But if the future condition is fulfilled, the sale takes place from when I'm signing the original contract, like from now. This is also an issue in philosophy. So here you have one kind of time, which is the time of days and months and the time between now and when the mall is built. And then you have another kind of time, which is a legal construction in which the sale that actually takes place two months from now will have been said to have taken place now. So even just starting with this example, we can see how imagining time differently can solve legal problems and also reminds us that time is something that is constructed by people in every case. Choosing to see that days and nights are time or that my physical aging is time. These are also my own interpretations and constructions. But when I look at something a little bit more artificial, like a legal construction of time, it actually makes me realize that there are many kinds of time which are all sort of filtered mm-hmm. through my perception. And I, please, Can I give you one other yes, example? Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, the other example would be in a narrative context. And this is a different way of being imaginative, but maybe closer to Wolf. Uh, I'm not sure. If you're telling a story and you want to emphasize that two events happened at the same time, the trouble with words is that they are both written and read one after the other successively. Unlike, let's say, comics where uh, it's a kind of a visual art form and you can have things happening on the page and the reader will be taking them in at the same time, if you want to narrate with just words to um, distant but simultaneous events, like over there in London, I don't know, a dog jumps through a hoop, and over there in New York, uh, somebody is clapping their hands. How do you say that? How do you show that to be simultaneous? What I just said to you was one after the other. So this is a this is a real problem in narrative. It's a problem that the ancients, not just in Ju- Judaism, also in Greek, and I'm sure others have been trying to figure out how do you allow narrative to portray simultaneity when narrative itself is um, not simultaneous. And there are lots of ways of, and why would you want to show simultaneity? Well, one thing is like you're just telling that story, but in in rabbinic n- narratives, there's particular reasons. So. For example, if somebody does a bad thing, like he disappoints his wife, he only sees her once a year because he's that kind of guy, which is already not so great. And he's going to come home once a year and then he doesn't show up. 
and the, the Talmudic narrator wants to tell his audience that is bad behavior. The way he can tell them that it's bad behavior is if that guy who is late and doesn't show up for his wife dies. And when does he die? At the exact moment that the woman's emotional, she's at her emotional nadir. Like she realizes he's not coming home and she is gutted. If the man dies exactly when her emotions are like at the pits, then we know that God, you know, from the narrator's perspective, God punished him. So simultaneity can be a very important narrative technique to show justice and to show punishment. But then how do you, how do you show that narratively? So the, the rabbis create interesting ways of showing simultaneous events and the reason why time in the narrative is so important is for the, is the reasons I just said, that it actually de- matters how you portray time in a story because it has very specific consequences for the interpretation. So to summarize, creating different kinds of time, whether it's simultaneous events in different places or it's uh, legal fictions that allow time to be reconstructed for the benefit of the people participating, these allow allow rabbinic narrators, rabbinic creators to teach and to create and to make a lifestyle that that works and allows either compliance with what they see as God's law or achieving a certain kinds of ideologies. So there's a lot to be done with time if they can imagine it creatively. I see. And uh, I imagine the creative use of time is different in different times and different cultures and different places. How, how does the Talmud's view and use of time compare with those of its contemporary cultures, the Christian cultures and the Hellenistic culture around them? I would like to know more about that. From, from my research so far, I can say a few things. Um, one thing was that there may be a difference from earlier Jewish what they call kind of second temple or second commonwealth time of this new testament um jewish ideas about time and storytelling um and rabbinic and that would be something like perhaps a um maybe a greater latitude about where authority lies so this is a little bit too uh maybe a bit too uh broad a thing to say but th- there may be in the creating of rabbinic midrash, which is a particular kind of biblical interpretation, when that happens, and it's very it's a very specific mode. When midrash happens, as compared to earlier uh, Jewish storytelling, and other scholars, I'm not innovating this. Stephen Fraud, other people have said this. There's a different kind of time that happens in midrash than perhaps happens in. Um, earlier Second Temple texts. And what might that be? Well, it would be unifying the storyteller and the story receiver in some kind of... Um, I'm not answering this well enough that I, that I want to go down that road. Okay. <laughs> I know. And that's a scholar's right. And and uh, and privilege to not speak, and unless she really knows what the, what the story is. So I was just interested in comparing it to other contemporary cultures. But you actually, I mean, there's I can oh, I can tell you a little bit about 
what's happening, at least in the scholarship, in Christian. I did a little bit of research into what scholars of Syriac Christianity and Zoroastrianism, which were different uh, religions at the same time in roughly similar places as the Babylonian Talmud, what are they saying about religious ideas of time and legal ideas of time in those cultures? Okay. And I didn't I didn't see as much research as I as I would like. I think it would be great if there was even more. But for example, there is good research into the idea of time or ideas of religious time in Zoroastrianism, and that's quite different. I don't know how much overlap or connection we can say, but just for people who might be interested in how Zoroastrianism works, um, and here I'm relying on other people's research, including Kianush Rizanya. So just to say that in, in these Zoroastrian texts, there are ideas about specific eras in which there's either just the good God and no movement and no change, and I guess also no bad aspects. And then there's a middle part of time, which our world would be in, in which there's both the bad kind of aspect and the good God and and the people and all creation is trying to fight it out for the good to overcome the bad. And then in the end, the bad aspect, which is embodied in this kind of personage called Ahriman will go away and there will eventually be another kind of time in which there's also some sort of stillness and lack of the bad. And so here you have kind of a stretching out of eons and they have different characteristics to them. Um, but that is kind of a cosmological account of time. It's not exactly comparable to the sorts of time I was working on, which were very specific and local to legal questions and also to narratives that rabbis told about themselves or about biblical personalities. And a better comparison to those kinds of times would be looking in legal texts of legal or practice texts of those kinds of people, whether they're Christians or Zoroastrians or others, and seeing what kinds of stories they're telling and what kinds of laws they're making. I found some parallels here or there, but but I think that that work is work to be done more by experts in those areas. And then there can be a really rich conversation between people doing late antique religion and law and seeing how time might come up in all of those areas. So I think that's that's something that I'm looking forward to. Okay, research that still needs to be done. Your your own research uh, used a phenomenal, phenomenological approach. Um, what is phenomenology, and why was it particularly useful for the study of time? Phenomenology is is a way of looking at reality through experience. And what I got from reading phenomenology was that instead of trying to look at what's true or what could be kind of proven through good stages of of um, reasoning and logic, and if that's a proof and that's not a proof, instead of working that way about time, what phenomenology taught me was to describe what I am seeing. And to describe what would be implicit about time through this text or that law. And so rather than, um, rather than try to test whether something was, could hold water as a philosophical concept, 
phenomenology taught me to approach a rabbinic legal text or rabbinic narrative text and just to, as I say, just to describe what I'm seeing. So for example, if, if it's possible for something in the future to have happened in the past, then I'm going to say, what kind of time is that? And that's a kind of a more phenomenological or phenomenologically influenced question than other approaches to thinking and reading. So you can infer, if I'm understanding you right, you infer the notion of time from the text, whether it's a novel or the Talmud or, I don't know, a set of laws. Is that right? That's exactly right. So something doesn't have to have the headline, this is about time, in order to be eligible for a time-related interpretation. Because so much of what humans create, whether it's, I don't know, in, in literature, in, in law, in any kind of arts, it might actually have to do with time and to do with other things. That The approach that I'm taking here isn't just one for someone who's interested in time philosophy or time ideas. It's the same kind of approach that a literature person would look at for what does this say about a, a certain emotion, happiness, or what, what appears to be happening here regarding uh, relationships between uh, women friends or something like that. Like it's, it's a, it, what it does is it breaks open the kind of material you could look at for time and not just limit your questions about time to things that other people have already decided is time or that the texts themselves call time. Now, in the case of rabbinic literature, there isn't really an abs, you know, like a philosophical time concept that is fully formed. There are a lot of discussions of holidays and of, you know, the Sabbath. And so those things, a modern scholar might say, oh, that's time. Let me go there and analyze what time means. And that would be a completely legitimate analysis of time in rabbinic literature. I wanted to do something a little bit different, which is to say, how is time, like you're saying, to infer temporal presumptions, even if they don't have time, like I might have time, what has to be presumed in order to write a story that way or in order to create a law that way? What is possible and what is beyond the limits of possibility? What could, what is beyond what they think is reasonable for a legal fiction or for for a story. And by finding that boundary of the kinds of stories they're willing to tell and the ones that they don't tell, um, or the kinds of laws they're willing to make and the new constructions of time for law, that also shows you the boundary of what they can't think temporally. So all of this stuff is inferred. It's not to say that they are theorizing time like I am, but I do think that you can find presumptions or you know underlying um, boundaries of what's possible and not possible through the, this kind of analysis. Okay, that really clarifies it. And now let's take it one step further. How does memory come in? What's the relationship between time, narrative, and memory? The first thought I have as you ask that question is that memory automatically introduces a person or people into this conversation. You can say time and people can think, and they have thought in the past, that this is something absolute, universal, not to do with humans, something that might exist outside of humans. That's obviously a philosophical debate. But if you say time, you don't necessarily involve a person or people. And when you say memory, I, I think you automatically have a person in the room with you or people, a collective memory, a family's memory, 
intergenerational uh, connections between people. And I think that that's really important. It can be important for introducing an ethical dimension into your analysis so that you're making sure that you're not forgetting who's who's here and whose stories these are. Um, so that's my first kind of observation. Okay, that makes sense. I think another thing to, to talk about between time and memory is that um, memory could be thought of as one way of organizing time or as a subcategory or, or however you want to say it, in that memory proposes at least two time positions, the time of the rememberer and the time that's being remembered. But there could be more than two time positions because there could be the time of the rememberer who's remembering now, and they could be remembering another time of commemoration. For example, the the Passover um, evening commemorations of Exodus. So there's not just in these in these rabbinic texts, and also maybe you know in contemporary Jewish practices, this isn't just a memory of a created memory of leaving Egypt. This is also memories of families having commemorated together many, many times. So you could have at least two positions and then many more temporal positions, all of which are being connected through the act of of memory, which can either be done individually and or with groups. So there's something very um, human and potentially very emotional about memory that time can sound a little bit sterile and also may not be quite as specific um, as memory. Right, right. I, I will like to get back to that. Uh, but, but first, I, w- I want to ask you more of a mega question. The, the whole enterprise of the Babylonian Talmud took a religion that had been based in space, in geography, in the land of Israel, and altered it, adjusted it to place it in time so that it could be practiced anywhere. How did their flexible understanding of time facilitate that extraordinary, unique project? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that what you're pointing out connects to broader research about how Judaism comes to be Judaism in the absence of, like you're saying, either being in one location in, 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 let's say, in Palestine, in ancient Palestine, or of having a central place of worship, which also has a temporal component because it has regular sacrifices, whether they're daily or pilgrimage. All of these things, as you say, are uh, focusing people's attention in a particular place and also around particular Time. So even if you couldn't be at the particular place for the pilgrimage offering, the time of that offering would also be a special time for you. So I think that even before you talk about Jewish life or Hebrew life, Israelite life in exile, even in, in Palestine, according to earlier texts, there was a unification of, of space and time. There was a, a space that was very focused on, but it had temporal components, and those temporal components could unite many people who were already not in the actual central location. Right, like, like the Kandinsky yeah. uh, painting that you referred to. Because there are many different 
sort of circles and times all, all combining and, and overlapping. And connecting, yes. And connecting. Yes, I, I, I agree. So on the one hand, that can mean that there would be a um, continuity between that temporal unification that would be even in the time of a temple and the way of unifying people temporally after a temple. That said, I agree with you and other scholars of, of rabbinics, rabbinic literature would agree that something really different happens after the temple in the development of Judaism, different kinds of Judaism and, and rabbinic Judaism. And that is to focus on, for the rabbis at least, the creation of a pretty robust set of rules and customs to observe that would allow compliance with God even without having a central place of sacrifice and gathering. And so I'm sort of, I think, just saying what you said, but by giving rhythms of, of practice and those rhythms of practice and the focuses on more local, either in the home or synagogue or study hall, those kinds of uh, acts of devotion could come to replace uh, something like a temple. But I, but I would be hesitant because sometimes there have been more modern Jewish philosophical accounts of Judaism as a religion of time, not of place, like maybe, maybe Heschel, something like that. And I think that that might, while it's very beautiful and important, it might maybe overemphasize time as a unifying factor and then in my case kind of temporal creativity as a as sort of some sort of new way of dealing with exile when actually there have been spatial and temporal components to Jewish texts and Jewish thought throughout and we wouldn't want to overemphasize time and maybe underemphasize space even post-destruction of the temple, if that makes sense. It makes very good sense and that's important to, to clarify. Uh, earlier, you mentioned uh, one example of how a law could be written with a contingency that uh, dealt with the future, and if that contingency took place, then the contract would have begun earlier. Um, and, and that makes sense to our contemporary mind. Uh, are there other examples of... Um, temporal imagination that are a little less comfortable to our modern way of thinking? You know, I think so. I think there are some really interesting examples of time in the Talmud that are uncomfortable, but they may not be uncomfortable only because of modern versus late antique. They may be uncomfortable because sometimes legal thinking is appears to be so not in connection with um, lived experience, that that, that particular uh, estrangement is, is really troubling. Whether or not it's ancient or, or modern, it could just be legal and lived or legal and non-legal. But let me give you an example of something that I think is very tantalizing intellectually, um, but very hard to deal with um, from lived experience. And that would be the principle that the Talmudic editors uh, people, let's say in the years 500s, or not exactly sure when the Talmud is edited, they created this idea called Brera, literally meaning some kind of clarification. 
And this is really cool. This is really cool. The, the cases, though, come from much earlier than the, than the Talmud. They come from, let's say, the, um, the third century of the Common Era. They come from the Mishnah. And, and what I'm going to now do is I'm going to give you this case, and then I'll tell you what the Talmud says about it. So this case is that a person, a rabbinic Jew, is only allowed to travel within a certain uh, radius of their home on the Sabbath. That creates kind of a local feel of the holy day and people aren't going on long trips and there's something very kind of, you know, maybe it produces a, a very local feel. There's all sorts of ideas about what this idea, what this limitation is about. But suffice to say, it's about 2,000 cubits or maybe that would be I don't know, let's just say 2,000 yards in any direction from your house. Beyond that, the rabbinic Jew can't travel on the Sabbath. But there is one way of getting around it, which is you could move your house. So your house actually stays in the same place. But if you want to be able to go not just 2,000 cubits from your house on the Sabbath, but maybe 4,000 cubits, because let's say there's going to be a great lecture in the next, you know, someone else is hosting a lecture quite far away and you want to travel there by foot on the Sabbath, 4,000 cubits away, you can create a legal residence for yourself at the very edge of where you would have been able to go from your own house and say that now, instead of your house being your home for the Sabbath, this new legal residence at the very edge, 2,000 cubits away from you, is now your legal home. And if that's the case, your entire 2,000 in every direction radius has changed. It's moved, let's say, 2,000 cubits to the east. Terrific. So now when you wake up in the morning on the Sabbath day, you can walk 2,000 cubits to the east to your legal residence and then a further 2,000 cubits to the person's house who's having this terrific lecture. Okay. Am I good so far? Very legalistic and clear. Very legalistic. So we already are in the realm of lots of legal fictions, legal problem solving. So the law has created a problem and now the law is going to try to solve the problem for good causes that it thinks are good causes. Okay. The thing is, when they created this idea, which is Eruv Tehumin, the rabbi said, you can only do this in one direction. I don't want you doing this in like a million different directions. One direction, why is that? Because you can have only one legal residence at a time. You can't have two. So the minute you said that your legal residence is 2,000 cubits from your house, your house is just a place you happen to be. It is not your legal residence. Now, the Mishnah entertains the possibility that you don't know where the lecture is going to be. It could be at your friend's house who lives 4,000 cubits to the east, or it could be at your friend's house who lives 4,000 cubits to the west. Now you have a problem. <laughs> you definitely want to hear this lecture, but you don't know which way you need to go on the Sabbath morning. Okay. What do you do? <laughs> so you can't create two alternative legal residences, only one, because you only live in one place at a time from a legal perspective. All right. One other piece of information. If you want to change your legal residence for the Sabbath as a rabbinic Jew, you need to finish this legal change before the Sabbath begins. You're not allowed to choose to live somewhere else when the Sabbath has already begun. You have to kind of create this new fiction and then let the Sabbath come in. It's kind of like like if you're installing new, like a new, I don't know, a microphone in your computer or something like that, sometimes you want everything ready and then you turn the computer on and then like the computer picks up on all the new software and hardware. It's similar here with the, with the Sabbath. Like if they want to create a new legal reality, everything has to be in place before the Sabbath begins. Then the Sabbath starts and, oh, it turns out you live somewhere else. Okay. So here is the problem. If you don't know where the lecture is going to be, east ways or west ways, 
and the Sabbath is about to begin. You're not going to have the opportunity to change your legal residence because you have to have it done before nightfall on Friday. So the Mishnah says you're actually allowed to put to create two potential legal residences for yourself, one east and one west. And on Sabbath morning, when you hear that the lecturer came, let's say, from the east, you walk to the east, and then that shows that actually your legal residence is to the east. This is crazy because you know on Friday definitively that you did not know where your legal residence was going to be. Everybody knows that because you put two different markers, let's say, in opposite directions. You declared from a legal perspective that you did not know where you wanted to live. And then on Sabbath morning, you decided, how can you say that that is legitimate? Because when the Sabbath began, you're meant to know everything and have established a new residence. The fact that the Mishnah allows you to make a decision on Saturday morning, which has to have happened on Friday, is a major challenge, but it's allowed. Eventually, the the Talmud comes to conclude that this is, they try to pull back a little bit from from what this could mean. The later later decision makers say, oh no, that's really not possible and you can't do it for this way or that way. But the Mishnah thought you could say from a legal perspective that something that happened at 8 a.m. on Saturday actually happened at 6 p.m. on Friday. That is crazy. And that is a kind of time that I don't feel any physical experience of, or I don't, I can't imagine living that way. Maybe in the memory, I'm not sure, but I don't know what you think. I mean, can can you imagine having lived an experience of something that happens on Saturday morning actually having happened on Friday evening? Well, I think of it as the imaginative use of time in a legal context. Now, if we move to your beautiful chapter about the Passover Seder, in which you refer to Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, we look at uh, the flexibility, the magic of time in an emotional and psychological sense um, in which taste, the sense of taste, evokes memory with an intensity that, that blurs the boundary between past and present. So it, I guess it depends on the context. Uh, tell us about how that works in the Passover Seder, how how the blurring of those boundaries works. You're really right. I mean, I think that there is this kind of potentially similar idea of the past happening in the present that can that can take place in reenaction reenactments of memory, like in the Passover Seder, like you're talking about. And also maybe the, the legal idea that I talked about with this person with two legal residences, which is impossible, maybe that also kind of in, intimates that that there could be that this legal thinking could also be related to or um, possible because we can also feel that way sometimes. So the uh, rabbinic texts that I that I analyzed are about the portrayal of what happens on Passover Eve each year for rabbinic Jews as they're observing and remembering the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. And rabbinic texts say that this should not be um, this should not be a simple recitation of what happened to other people, but that the commemoration on Passover Eve should be internalized by the participants as their own 
experience. Now, how does this happen? How can a person feel that they've experienced something which no one they know ever actually experienced? The, the rabbinic texts give a number of tactics to help uh, engender this feeling. One is to align the commemoration time with the time that they think the exodus happened, like the time of night or the date. So it's sort of like having a portal that is all lined up so that you have like, you have some kind of opening in your time and then that opening opens through all the other evening of, of you know, whatever it is, the particular date in that month and that time of night. It, it, al- it aligns all of those moments through history. So it gets the rabbinic Jews back to connecting with their, their kind of imagined Israelite forebears. So one thing would be do this at the same time on the same date. Another way of making this an, a, a personally and communally experienced thing that didn't actually happen to them, as you say, it has to do with other kinds of senses. So eating, eating the bitterness that was experienced in the lives of Israelites or eating the food that Israelites ate. Those are two different kinds of memories. One is I am going to use taste to imagine a feeling. And the other is I'm going to use taste to imagine a whole experience and then maybe I'll get the feeling from it. So those are slightly different moves, but they both are using taste um, and words storytelling. And so there are a number of different tactics to allow someone who doesn't remember from their own experience to construct a memory and a connection to an experience in a very distant uh, communal past. And it seems to work. It's been going on for centuries. Yes, and I, and I think one of the reasons that you know contemporary Jewish practice has not uh, like lost this, why it seems to still be possible, is that each commemoration recalls a commemoration as well. It doesn't the, the these tactics that the rabbis are kind of creating, they don't have to reinvent the wheel each year, because if a person has lived multiple years of commemorations, I think it creates its own structure of feelings. Because now you actually have your own person, if, if one did this from year to year to year, you have your own personal memories of commemorating, even if you don't have your personal memories of being enslaved in Egypt and then going free. You've really been very generous with your time. Uh, before you go, tell us about what you're working on now. Thank you. I have two projects I'm really excited about. One is about, it's a new book. It's going to be about time wasting in uh, ancient rabbinic and contemporary rabbinic and other related writings. One of the things that I'm really concerned about there and I'm interested in is the development of ideologies of being constantly occupied, the potential harms that can do to people, the ways that those expectations are constructed using ancient texts, and the ways that ancient texts themselves thought about occupation and busyness um, versus being idle. And then the other thing that I've been working on is uh, a project about how the Talmud depicts 
regular non-rabbi, non-legal expert Jews who come to their courts for judgment. There are a number of wonderful examples where the judgment doesn't go like you and I might expect, where the judge is the authority and the person just comes to submit to the law. Instead, in a number of really interesting examples, the judge expresses ambivalence about his role. It's always men. Um, his ambivalence about the judgment that he's giving or the petitioner does not just submit, but rather argues or cries or um, chooses a different venue. And so I'm quite interested in rabbinic portrayals of the unsettling of the relationship between judge and petitioner, and especially when the petitioner is not a legal expert. I think that has resonance even until today. There's lots of times when people have to enter a legal context, maybe for landlord-tenant law or other kinds of family law. What kinds of strategies do people have at their disposal who aren't lawyers to try to get the results that they want? So this, I think, continues to be a really interesting and important question, and I'm interested in exploring it in uh, rabbinic portrayals in late antiquity. Those are two great projects. Really terrific. I'll look forward to reading both those books when they come out. Uh, Lynn, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks as well to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff. Thank you, Renee.